Okay, our next slide is Dr. Roger Bedimo. Um, Roger is a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. Um, at some point in his career, he trained at UAB as a fellow and somehow um, uh, survived the program. Um, it, it's wonderful for Roger to be here. He's really focused his investigation work, his research on a lot of the metabolic complications of HIV, uh, especially issues like weight gain that we're all fighting. But today he's going to give us uh, kind of what I call the safety net talk, where uh, we have a lot of topics that we cover, but the ones that we couldn't cover, he's going to provide an update of what he heard at CROI. And uh, we're really looking forward to uh, hearing what you heard. Welcome, Roger. Thank you so much, Dr. Sack. Uh, I'm here because Dr. Sack gave me some remedial HIV training at UAB, and <laughs> I, I needed those, so thank you. And actually, this lecture, uh, in case you missed it, is also titled The Cure for FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. <laughs> if you missed out on other things, this is what we're going to cover. So, and these are my disclosures. And we will look at some presentations on mortality and morbidity of people living with HIV, and then looking at use of antiretrovirals for treatment and prevention, as well as looking at complications. And we'll touch a little bit on COVID and MPOX. So the first one will be the trends in survival of people with HIV, then antiretroviral use for PrEP and HIV care and then prevention and management of OIs, as well as updates on COVID and MPOX. First part, we will look at just how are we faring in doing what exactly we're supposed to be doing when we care for people with HIV, allowing them to live long and healthy lives. So it looks like even before they get to us, they're faring just fine, better than they used to. This is a dramatic decline in the mortality among people entering HIV care up to 2012 in this analysis. So as you notice at the end of that graph, there is still a gap in survival. It's closing that gap that is our task as we think that antiretroviral therapy is the low hanging fruit now. We can almost convince someone coming to our care that if they adhere to the antiretrovirals we're giving them, or if they don't tolerate them, the next ones, the next regimen, they will be virologically suppressed. So that's the low-hanging fruit, and it's been picked by shorter people. So taller people should go for the high-hanging fruit. And how has this gap narrowed over time? We had so-called highly active antiretroviral therapy since the onset of use of protease inhibitors in the mid-90s. So if you look at the curve in gray, this is the survival of people with HIV from 1996 to 1999, compared to the curve in uh, yellow or orange at the top, people without HIV. You see there was quite a gap, and that gap has narrowed in the 2000-2005, the blue curve, and now of even further from 2006-2014. So has it closed? Not quite. And this is why the follow-up analysis 
uh, presented at Croy a couple of months ago, suggests that that gap actually has continued to narrow. This study makes two points. Not only do we pick up from where that Danish study left off in 2014-2016 and see that the gap has continued to narrow in the rate of all-cause mortality per thousand person years continue to decline, but we also look at, if you look at the bars on the right, you see that there is a lower and lower representation of AIDS-related causes of death. That's the red at the bottom. With everything else, the non-AIDS at the top. Those non-AIDS are cardiometabolic complications and non-AIDS cancers by and large. So, and even within that time frame from 2016 to uh, 2014 to 2019, you see that every couple of years as the graph shows, we had a decline in crude all-cause mortality rate in people with HIV. It's another analysis presented at Croy. So we see from 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, and then 2018, 2019, decreasing mortality. But the gap persists. And what accounts for the persistent gap? It's the non-AIDS comorbidities and complications, cardiovascular disease, and others. The concerning thing is that these non-AIDS complications are accumulating as our people with HIV live longer. So this is a prediction that is sadly coming true, that there is a burden of comorbidities with more people living with two or three of those comorbidities now. We're talking about cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, osteoporosis, and non-AIDS malignancies. So our task is to not just prevent those, but mitigate them. But before any of that, we need to understand what drives the persistent gap, what drives these uh, complications in people with HIV. Now, we have people coming to HIV with a baggage. We all have baggages. Some have just a little suitcase. Some have a U-Haul. And that baggage is genetic environmental behavioral. Now, HIV comes in and might add to your risk, but you don't live long enough to have these complications if you're not on antiretroviral therapy. So it was a cause of concern 15 years or so ago when it was, there was an inkling that even some of those antiretroviral therapies may be adding to the risk. This is when Abacavir and, uh, and recent use of Abacavir within six months was associated with increased risk of cardiovascular diseases in this DAD analysis. Ensued chaos because some studies confirmed this, some studies did not. And what did the guidelines bodies? The guidelines bodies reacted by saying, if somebody is an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, it's best to avoid a back of your index. And according to the response cohort published a couple of months ago, this is exactly what happened. People who had increased DAD, cardiovascular disease risk score, that is high, were not given a back of you. So the higher your DAD score was, that's what the curve on the right shows, the lower your odds of being put on a back of you. So when you look at this group of about 30,000 people, 30% of them had recently initiated a back of you in the collaboration of 17 cohorts in Europe, what they saw still is that recent abacavir use was associated with a 40% greater incidence of cardiovascular disease 
not explained by preferential abacavir use in individuals at increased CVD or CKD risk. So there might be something to the story. Now, if these people are right, uh, soon you're gonna be addressed by a real cardiologist, Dr. Matt Feinstein, saying, but I play the cardiologist on TV. And I know that if you give someone a drug and they develop acute MI in six months, they did not just accumulate fat and, 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 and build plaque in six months. Something must have happened in somebody who was already predisposed for that. So when I play the cardiologist on TV, I will try to see how this could happen. And thankfully, uh, this is uh, another study in, uh, presented at Croy, which is the Swiss cohort. Now, what they showed is a, it's a cohort people relatively young. You know, I've earned the right to call a 39-year-old a young person. And, and with a BMI that is a European BMI, 24, and, <laughs> and a CD4 count of about 30. So what they showed is that, indeed, uh, <clears throat> Institute in blue was progressively greater in that cohort uh, compared to before the cohort, non-institute, mostly PI and, and NRTI. While they, in their own controlled analysis, they confirmed what the response study showed that exposure to INSTI or cumulative use of INSTI was associated with an increased risk. When they control for all these things, including calendar year where the treatment was started, they found that there was no increased risk, which led a collective sigh of relief at Croy a couple of months ago. Now, this is one cohort analysis versus another one. The truth may be the same epistemic chaos we had with Bacavir in, uh, in 15 years ago. We'll see. So this is where I get to play the cardiologist. So I say, okay, if you develop cardiovascular disease within six months of starting Bacavir, if that is true, it probably means that you already had a plaque somewhere, and the proximate event, uh, there, so it wasn't a teroma formation that was, uh, 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 <clears throat> that, that was induced by a back of you, but the proximate event, which are plaque instability, maybe inflammation made the plaque unstable, maybe the drug made the plaque unstable, or thrombosis, which is the final uh, uh, a blow. So does HIV promote either of those three steps? Yes, we've seen that HIV promotes an heterogenic lipoprotein profile, HIV promotes a dysfunction, and if you have LDL that goes down in the subepithelium, they get gobbled up by macrophages, they become foam cells, and they are fatty streaks, and that's the ateroma formation. However, there's a cleanup mechanism. That's what HDL does for Livito, that leads to efflux, uh, cholesterol efflux from these macrophages, initiating a reverse cholesterol transfer to the liver, that's HDL. So HIV appears to also impair that cleanup mechanism. So that is the one thing. So do drugs that we give people happen to impact these events? We don't know, but we now are again very hopeful because reprieve, which is a gift a gift that keeps giving, and has just showed us that with giving statins in people who had low to moderate risk of cardiovascular disease, we actually do decrease 
the medical attended cardiovascular events by a whopping 35%. Now, these are not the people who had indication for statins. The people who did not. Now, when I saw this, I went to my PCP and asked him to please put me on a statin. And because short of putting on drinking water, if this is true, we probably need to understand what are these statins doing. It's possible that it's not just decreasing your cholesterol. Now, they have pleiotrophic uh, um, mechanism of action that can decrease inflammation and, and other things. So because some studies have been shown that they decrease the risk of cancer. And I'm sure reprieve is a gift that will keep giving by showing us what else those statins did to the people with HIV. With 7,700 people, we really have the chance to show a few things. Now, let's go back to Africa. Now, if you, unless we are living in Iraq, or under Iraq, you know that in the past four or five years, we've been challenged with understanding why some people who take antiretrovirals develop a, a significant weight gain. And we know that these people are more likely to be black or Hispanic. We know that these people are more likely to be female. We don't know a whole lot else. Now, the advanced study, which is very aptly named because it did advance our knowledge on this, showed that if you took dolutegravir plus staph FTC that is in red, you're more likely to gain weight than if you take dolutegravir without TAF with TDF. And you, the lowest weight increase was with uh, a 5 variance FTC TDF. Now, what is new that was uh, uh, recently <coughs> published was that there was a programmatic shift in South Africa and many countries in Southern Africa where the standard of care became what they call TLD, uh, TDF plus lamivudine plus dolutegravir, which is very similar to the second arm of the advanced study in red. So what the advanced people did is create another cohort called Characterize, where the people who uh, rotate off of the advanced trial and were put on, on that uh, dolutegravir, 3TC, uh, <clears throat> TDF, or TLD, uh, let's look at what happens to their weight. And what happens was almost exactly what you would have predicted. So those who were on uh, TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir lost an average of 1.6 kilos. Those who were on a 5-range FTC TDF gained some weight, and those who were on the regimen that was very similar to T TLD did not change weight. So <clears throat> what this does is we're going to get other studies uh, that are going to help us in understanding what can we do to people with HIV who gained weight on either INSTIS or TAF or both. Is that a reversible weight gain? Thankfully, there is an inkling here that it just might be. Now, uh, since the weight gain on INSTIS is somewhat, I will call it front-loaded, I think I will caution people from interpreting the switch studies because your trajectory of your weight after you switch may be different if we are still on that ascending slope than when you had plateaued somewhere. And uh, so we will see. So this is what <clears throat> the characterized cohort showed us. Now, let's look at the use of antiretrovirals, either for pre-exposure prophylaxis or for managing treatment-naive or treatment-experienced uh, patients. We make a few points, which one of which is the long-term benefit of starting early. 
And uh, the other one being, you know, what exactly do we do when the going gets tough? Now, first, forgiveness. We all like forgiveness. And this is an analysis for people who took Cabotegra view uh, for PrEP. Uh, <clears throat> a cisgender women, this is HPTN 084, uh, a sister study, uh, literally, of HPTN 083 for MSM and transgender women. And what that showed uh, is they looked at carbotegravir concentrations in people who had uh, uh, delayed uh, injections, uh, either delayed or second injection uh, <clears throat> that occur eight to 14 weeks after the first one, or any subsequent uh, injection after the second injection that was delayed by 12 to 18 weeks. So the reassuring message here is that <clears throat> the carbotegravir concentrations remained at goal with these delays. Now, this is not something you should tell your patient the first time <laughs> they put on the capital that, but because we, we hope this holds true, but the caveat I put down there is that it doesn't imply that dosing can be outside of the recommended intervals and that this data can be extrapolated to men because these are women. And, and so, so caution, but again, it's, uh, it's, it's reassuring somewhat. This is a study that also led to DSMB terminating it in uh, 2014, 2015, which is the START study. The START study was at the time when it was still uh, uh, considered um, equipoise whether you should start somebody on antiretroviral therapy before the CD4 card dropped below a certain level, here it was 350, or you should start everyone on antiretroviral therapy regardless of the CD4 card. The study was terminated because there was not just a decreased risk of AIDS-related event, but also a decrease in non-AIDS-related events for people who started early. Now, that was important. <clears throat> what this subsequent analysis, starting January 2016, was to see that original scene of delaying antiretroviral therapy, is it something that you have to live with forever? Maybe not forever, but it has long-term effects, according to this. Starting 2016, even uh, from 2016 on, the hazard ratio of these serious AIDS and non-AIDS events was still somewhat higher in people who delayed than those who started early. So the starting early is beneficial even for the long haul. <clears throat> now, when the going gets tough, another thing that is getting somewhat interesting in antiretroviral therapy is that most of our studies, most of the data we have now on what to do in the first and second failure, are studies that come from resource-limited settings in Africa uh, and others. And we have the, the, the Nadia and Vicent before this, and this is the DF2. And in those uh, 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 resource-limited settings, most of the the, the programmatic uh, HIV management was with uh, NNRCI. Now it's changing to TLD uh, in most people. So what they set out to look at is what happens in people who are receiving first-line NNRCI-based regimen for more than six months, and they had a treatment failure with a varimia of over 500, and no previous PL inst exposure, <clears throat> and no hepatitis B. So they first randomized them to receiving darunavir, ritonavir, plus two NRTIs, uh, more uh, standard, but or dolutegravir plus darunavir, ritonavir. And when TLD became the law of the land, they added that third arm in blue at the bottom 
dolutegravir plus 3TC or FTC plus TDF. So what happened was that uh, both darunavir plus, uh, uh, sorry, dolutegravir plus darunavir ritonavir and dolutegravir plus either 3TC or FTC and TDF were non-inferior to the more conventional standard darunavir ritonavir plus two NRTIs. So all may be effective uh, uh, options after NNRTI failure. So, <clears throat> so it's important that, you know, when we first explored the, the concept of dolutegravir plus uh, a boosted PI, that was with the first generation dolutegravir, raltegravir, didn't fare so well, but it looks like uh, dolutegravir plus boosted uh, PIs may be a viable option. Now let's look at the prevention and management of opportunistic infection. And uh, so we've got a PEP on our step, thanks to doxycycline. And uh, we also can look at <clears throat> how to manage what is really, really a problem still in uh, Africa, which is cryptococcal meningitis in people with HIV. So STR remains a big problem in people with people on PrEP. Even the screening that uh, is being done every three months or so has not significantly limited the incidence of STIs. We see here that in this study, 290 MSM initiating PrEP, 41% were screened per guidelines, and 25% had at least one STI. So this is something that we probably should do something about. And thanks to doxycycline, first uh, presented at IAS, uh, uh, <clears throat> I mean, uh, uh, in, the, in the summer, but this is uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine. We show here that in uh, men who have sex with men and transgender women, either with HIV or on PrEP, uh, taking doxycycline 200 milligrams within 72 hours of a condomless sex decreased the incidence of uh, STI. And when you look at uh, a specific STI, so that did decrease uh, <clears throat> chlamydia, GC, and somewhat uh, syphilis. But when you look at GC, uh, for people on PrEP, there was a significant decrease for oocyte. For people on, uh, with HIV, a decrease mo uh, mostly sign statistically significant in the rectal area. But it's not when you do this sub-analysis, you don't necessarily have the power to show that it did not really decrease the pharyngeal DC and others. So what I want to focus on is what is in bold. The number needed to treat to prevent a quarter with an incident STI was 4.7 in the PrEP cohort and 5.3 in the people with HIV cohort. Now, you will not see this low number needed to treat in many studies. So you treat five people, you prevent one STI. So that's interesting. And, and, and so <clears throat> another, uh, that led to the termination really for, of this other study. Now this is looking at not just doxy, but meningococcal um, vaccination or 4 c men b vaccine. It's a two by two factorial design looking at people who receive doxypep, just the same criteria as the doxypep study presented earlier. In, uh, but these are people who were enrolled in ARS Preveni uh, uh, study in France, or looking at uh, uh, 4C men B vaccine or no vaccine. The first thing is that the two interventions did not interact with one another. That's important when you do a two by two uh, factorial design. But in August 2022, DOXIPEP results were out. In September 2022, this study, DOXIPEP, 
was stopped by the DSMB because there was significant effectiveness of both intervention, and let me just say of either intervention, uh, <clears throat> to, for preventing um, SCI. So first, the, <clears throat> the doxy part, they looked at chlamydia and syphilis with the uh, uh, effect that you see here. And if you look at uh, the, <clears throat> the luminance, you get so GC and, and, and uh, mycobacterial genitalium was also decreased. Now, self-reported adherence was decent, in around 80%. But what I want to show you here is just like you see in on-demand prep, uh, you, you can see how many doses people actually did take. And this is on-demand PEP, if you want to see. So the median number of pills per month was seven. And, and a few people, three, discontinued PEP. So it was a very well accepted and very efficacious. Uh, uh, and then for Meningue, time to first GC infection was also significantly lower in people who got Meningue because of you know, the sequence homology. Uh, between those. Uh, <clears throat> so important now to consider what are we doing uh, for people with HIV or on PrEP who have a significantly high risk of STI or who come in with them. So cryptomeningitis is a problem uh, mostly in uh, sub-Saharan Africa because uh, it has the highest cause of mortality in people with HIV. And it's difficult to uh, take amphotericin uh, uh, B, they also call it, uh, because of uh, uh, side effect and management, it's also not very available. And they tried high dose fluconazole, it didn't work so well. So then um, laposomal amphotericin B, uh, uh, reality study, I believe, was, was tried there. And, but it's expensive and, and So this study was really important because they looked at a single dose of laposomal amphotericin B on day one uh, with a chaser of uh, fluoxetine and fluconazole. And, and it was, uh, the, so amphotericin B, the oxycholate uh, also was the, the control for seven days, followed by fluconazole and um, as per WHO recommendation. So you see in the, on the right here that there was actually a mortality benefit of uh, the single dose laposomal amphotericin B and 14 days of uh, flu and flu. <laughs> and uh, so it's important. It also avoids having to monitor those uh, uh, side effects of uh, B. So consider this, if you are in a setting where you, you, you have high uh, cryptococcal meningitis, and so if you have no ambisome, you can consider amphotericin B for 5-FC. If you have no ambisome uh, and no amphotericin B, you can consider 5-FC and fluconazole. <clears throat> so now let's finish with two other uh, 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 conditions, uh, COVID-19 and MPOX, uh, previously known as monkeypox. So, as Dr. Syke alluded to earlier, there is, we should not consider that we've turned the page on COVID as much as we would like to, um, and <clears throat> because there are unmet needs. The, the first unmet needs I will draw your attention to, uh, how do we prevent COVID on people with immunocompromised conditions? Um, we take vaccines, vaccines don't tend to work well with them. And, and uh, the fact that there was increasing resistance of uh, the subsequent variants of COVID-19 to even uh, tixagavimab, kilgavimab, which was the main way of preventing COVID-19 in people with you know, uh, compromised states, left us in a quandary. And this is the VA touting 
uh, uh, our VA healthcare system showed indeed that with those subsequent variants, the efficacy of Tixagavimab uh, 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 decreased significantly all the way to uh, BQ1 and XBB. So we need to figure out what to do with these people because we don't have much. Uh, entered the, in ECMI 2023 a newer monoclonal antibody, uh, AZD3152, which had potent neutralization of all the variants that we have thus far. And in hamster study, not just it decreased the virus of ge genomic mRNA in levels in hamsters, but protect against weight loss of these hamsters and reduce lung pathology. So when, just when we thought we had no monoclonal antibodies left, we have this one that probably will work. That's why these guys had a very ambitious name of supernova for the trial that, <laughs> that they, they want to look at this and it's ongoing. We'll see if it's really going to bear the fruits. Again, this is, I'll finish with what uh, Dr. Sag was <clears throat> mentioning about XBB 1.16. This is a variant with unique characteristics. It seems to be a lot more transmissible. In India, it just overtook uh, in a very short order. And here, as of last week, it was already in about 10% of infections in the US. Now, it has a greater growth advantage. It had profound immune evasion um, um, that is uh, comparable to the XBB1 and 1.1. But the preliminary findings is that it, it has unique clinical characteristics involved, uh, it infects younger people, it causes conjunctivitis, things that we haven't really seen in uh, uh, <coughs> other COVIDs. And then finally, MPOX. Two points about this study of MPOX. The point number one <coughs> is people with advanced HIV have unique presentations of this MPOX. You have massive cutaneous and mucosal lesions, lung involvement, bloodstream infection, and the mortality was really proportional to the CD4 count. People with CD4 over 200, none of them died. CD4 uh, uh, count less than 200, 15% mortality, less than 100, 27% mortality. Those are significantly high mortality. So that's the point number one. Point number two is that when you do have these people with advanced HIV, and MPOC, be careful with initiation of antiretroviral therapy. There is MPOX iris with a clinical deterioration after ARV, more than 50% mortality. So this is something that we still need to uh, be on the lookout for. And uh, I thank you, I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you for your attention. Benson for this Q&A. All right. Uh, I'll take Constance okay. Benson on TV. So again, feel free to come to the microphones or uh, send in your questions on Slido. That seems to be working pretty well. So the first is, would you advocate starting HIV, all HIV patients, treated or untreated on statins after a certain age? And we're going to get to that in great detail in our final Talk to may them. I, what, may I punt? <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it is, of course, we will understand that a, a, a lot better. Uh, all I can say now is that 
With the press release, we had a significant decrease in event in people who had low to moderate cardiovascular risk. And when the data is passed with more granularity, we will probably answer more of those questions. Yeah, I think there's several major um, new developments that we're going to hear a couple times during the meeting today in the cases, you heard, just heard some of it, in the cases that I'm going to go over in, uh, in the next talk after the break, and also um, during the specific talks on cardiovascular at the end of the day and the STI update, where you'll see more of the depth of the data. So those two themes will be riding through this um, in terms of doxycycline, in terms of starting statins and that type of thing. Um, this is a question, again, we'll get to a lot more detail later about syphilis, but it can be spread through skin-to-skin -skin contact, so why is the recommendation in condomless sex? May I punt? <laughs> yeah, you can punt. <laughs> so yeah, Dr. Wokowski will really discuss that uh, uh, a lot more. And then we can only infer from the population that was included in studies. Now, I cannot tell you what would have happened if we had any sex, not just condomless, but that point is well taken. Now, and not, not having the data, I cannot tell you. Yeah, this, I mean, we'll, Dr. Rokowski will get into this, but there, are, I don't know about your all's clinic, I'm sure it's like ours. There, every day, there's a couple people out of our, uh, what are we, 3,000 active patients we're following who come in with active syphilis, and we've had a bicillin shortage and uh, Dr. Wachowski will talk a little bit about what to do there, but um, it, it's a real challenge when there's not enough bicillin to treat, and, and you see the recurrence of uh, this happening over and over again. So um, one of the questions that will be addressed in her talk is what about doxy for preventing syphilis? Yeah. Mm, sort of works. And uh, the condoms are really primary prevention, and so I don't think we should walk away from here and say, oh, don't worry about it. Nah, there's a lot of transmission. Um, talk to me a little bit more about MPOX. Um, what do you think is going to happen come this summer? A lot of the public health officials are uh, saying, yeah, yeah, we got it under control now, but when, you know, summer's here and the time is right for dancing in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I remember last summer um, when we had a surge in cases and then the curve started flattening. A lot of people patted themselves in the back. We, they uh, struggled to explain what happened. Was that public health messaging that led to people having risky health behavior? Was that because we uh, identified and managed the uh, people who got infected sooner? Uh, or don't we understand and are we at the mercy of another wave? Uh, I tend to think <laughs> the latter and, and be on the lookout. In Dallas, we had a, uh, a surge in cases uh, in May and June of last year, and last then year. quickly we started having a decline. But Right. Uh, and and the, the, the last thing that people uh, have considered was uh, as a likely uh, uh, cause for the decline is vaccination. Now, remember the CDC uh, a study showing the vaccination was significantly uh, effective, yeah. and, and so we'll see. And, and that was really remarkable because, remember, initially it was a large dose, and then they cut it down by about mm -hmm. uh, 80%, mm -hmm. and that allowed more people to get access. Remarkably, it worked at the lower dose, and, but a lot of people have only had one shot, so mm -hmm. 
I think in preparation for the summer, we ought to redouble and think about how to get that second shot uh, in. Here's a question about um, the supernova trial. Were, were um, people with HIV included in that study? Hmm, good question. I'm not sure that detail was presented. They had a couple of studies. So they went from phase one to phase three. In the phase one, they have this AZD3152 uh, uh, sorry, and combined with Kilgavimab, which is uh, a component of uh, Tixagavimab Kilgavimab, which was uh, uh, used here for prevention, just to see if, uh, since they didn't bind in the same uh, uh, area of the virus of the receptor binding domain, whether they will, uh, they will potentiate each other. But in the long-term study, the phase three, they're using uh, AZD3152 alone in about 3,000 people. What actually they're trying to get, and I'm sure, I'm sure that's going to create some problems in the U.S. because they're trying to get approval in Europe based on immunogenicity. Uh, but maybe when we realize that we have nothing else, we'll have to take that. Uh, even if they have 3,000, they're powered for efficacy. That was going to take a lot longer. Uh, but I don't know if we'll have HIV. Right. This next question, Dr. Gandhi is going to probably get to about vaccination with MPOX, but um, what about giving it to somebody with a CD4 count less than 200? That's the group that's really at the highest risk, yes. right? They're yes. the ones who, there have been, I don't know, 57, yeah. 60 deaths yeah. in the United States yeah. from MPOX. Almost all of them, all of them. Yeah. are in low CD4 counts. I yeah. think ideally you'd like their virus, viral load controlled, but the CD4 count itself is. Yeah. Now, no, I, I, I would like to you, if I said I knew the efficacy of the vaccine in that group, uh, I hope somebody yeah. mm -hmm. here has the answer. So, uh, <laughs> Dr. Gandhi will be talking yeah. about that. Um, so this uh, question is a, more of a statement that we've had four cases of MPOX in the last week at Northwestern. Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Vanguard. Yeah. Just in the past week. Wow. Okay. Well, heads up. Yeah. Heads up. Mm. Okay, was the high mortality rate with MPOX iris among those with new diagnosis of HIV or untreated immunodeficiency? Mm. This is something Chloe Orkin presented uh, a couple of months ago, and I think if I remember, I don't remember her showing that data, but I remember when she was studying that study, she sent everyone uh, uh, notice that if you do have anybody with HIV who had MPOX, uh, contact her to create a cohort. I don't think that was limited to people who had just acquired HIV. I think yeah. it was all comers. And again, Dr. Gandhi will be getting into yeah. uh, a lot of the vaccines and the efficacy, but generally speaking, there can be for sure an, uh, an iris type reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and the deaths are pretty miserable deaths. I mean, that's. Mm. It's pretty awful, but you want to get T-pox to them, et cetera. But what percentage of people, what percentage of people, I mean, the mortality was 57%, but what No, percentage? not 57%, just 57 total deaths. No, 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 no but no, I know. 57% mortality. 57% mortality, but what percentage of people iris, developed Yeah, iris? who got oh, iris, sorry, yes, right. uh, good question. I don't know how many, what percentage got iris, but if you got it, the mortality was very high. Let me see. Um, I, I will get it. We, I, I don't we can look at it and get yeah. back to you yeah. and, and, and yeah. cover it again when uh, Monica talks. Okay. Um, and then uh, this is a doxy prep question, which again we'll get into more depth uh, as we go through. But basically, somebody on prep uh, 
and not HIV infected, but has frequent chlamydia infections, say, you know, yeah. maybe once a month. Um, that's someone who you would oh, do this uh, for, right? Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah. Yes, because, uh, well, a couple of reasons. Uh, it, it did work to decrease chlamydia, but also um, uh, chlamydia often comes with GC, so <laughs> it has a, a companion. Uh, a lot of the times, but uh, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Uh, Landowitz and Dr. Wolkowski would, would expand a lot more on those. Okay. Um, there's not any other questions that I see coming in.